Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Elaine Oddy. Elaine is a partner at NSO Associates LLP, a firm of chartered certified accountants and statutory auditors based in Chelmsford, Essex. Um, Elaine, good morning to you and thank you ever so much for joining us on today's show. Good morning, Scott, and nice to be here. Likewise, Elaine, pleasure having you. Certainly is a uh, lovely day for it as well. Um, I think a good place to start on the show would be by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast in mid-July 2021. So although we're edging towards that July the 19th Freedom Date, we're still living under some form of social restrictions, aren't we? And that's now been the case for the best part of 15 or so months. Um, Looking back over the pandemic by and large, to what extent has all of this affected you and your business, would you say? Um, Right. So the the first lockdown uh, was a very major impact uh, on our business, um, as I think it was on all our clients' businesses as well. And uh, initially, we we really just didn't know um, what was going to happen. Uh, All we knew was that we had to um, stop having people working in our office and enable them all to work remotely, um, which we were able to do, although initially it was uh, a bit of a, well, a, a major change and a bit of a culture shock as well, I think. Um, so, uh, for the, as I say, for the first, the first lockdown, uh, we initially um, did furlough some of our staff, uh, simply because we didn't have work coming in for them to do. Um, but it became very obvious as, as things sort of went on that um, people still needed accounts done and payroll done and VAT returns completed and tax returns completed, and, and that's what we do. So um, we we then uh, embarked on a, a, an IT strategy of, of getting everybody set up with a, a laptop so that they could work remotely, and uh, that's how we've been working more or less for the last year and three months, I suppose. Um, and now it, we're finding uh, the demand for our services is um, as, as big as it ever was. Um, mm. And we're just carrying on, basically. Yes, yeah, certainly. With regards to the furlough scheme as well, I think it has really sort of edged up demand for things like payroll services. And whereas I think payroll professionals were maybe seen as sort of the unseen operators sort of working with companies in the past, I think perceptions of those people are now really starting to sort of change in a more positive way, aren't they? People are realising just how critical it actually is. Yeah, um Exactly. Uh, well, I, I think they realised that quite early on. I don't think um, it's taken a year for that. Mm. Uh, but uh, yes, it, it, you know, there are some things that um, you know, companies need all the time. Um, you know, the, the support from 
um, for various accountancy services, and probably payroll is the most immediate one. Um, VAT returns is another one, and is another one. Um, tax returns and annual accounts as well. So, yeah. That's, uh, and just, touching, and just touching on the remote working side of things, um, you yeah. had to, of course, adapt to that very, very quickly. Um, from yourself in a leadership perspective, what's it been like sort of guiding your team sort of from a distance as opposed to sort of being in an office environment together? Uh, well, as I said, it, it, it's been a culture shock. Mm. Um, uh, fortunately, we had uh, what we now realise were good systems in place. I mean, we thought they were good anyway, but, uh, but they, they stood the, the test of time. Um, so that we, we've, and we've probably fine-tuned some of those uh, so that we know what anybody's doing at any time, uh, even though we're not physically in the same place as they are. Um, we have now actually arranged that some people do come into the office on a, um, a rotor system, um, simply because there's they, still... Uh, some things that have to be done on paper, not a lot anymore, but um, that, that is a, a necessary evil, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and also, it, it does enable people to um, just you know, speak to the, the people they're working with more directly rather than through Teams. We use that a lot, um, or emails, or possibly over the phone. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, um, but in terms of sort of leading the team, it's been very important to you know, sort of make sure people tell me what they're doing and I know what they're doing and we, we raise queries between ourselves as well um, in, in probably a, a different way than we used to, but still it works. And I think it's important still having that office environment there for use, isn't it? Because working remotely isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think pre-pandemic, we certainly took sort of the social side of the workplace for granted somewhat, didn't we? And with that in mind, um, even though, of course, we may get to a point where COVID is no longer an immediate and present danger, I think that sort of hybrid working approach of having the office and having the flexible working option, that's probably going to be the status quo moving forward, isn't it? I think it will be. Um, we, for anybody who's got um, sort of any any form of caring responsibilities, for instance, it's, I know it's been quite helpful to them. Obviously, initially they had to look after kids at home, or um, you know, um, uh, that's no longer the case. But um, they, they've they've still found it very useful to be able to. And there's there's. They've got um, childcare responsibilities, for instance. Um, but uh, uh, as, as you say, the, the, the social aspect is still important, and, and I, I, it's nice now. Where, as I say, we 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 are using the office on a, on a, um, a reduced number of people in it, so that we can maintain social distancing. But um, it, it's still nice when when somebody comes in and you know somebody says to them, "Oh, I haven't seen you for months," <laughs> which is true. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Just having that interaction with people that you've not been able to see for quite a long time. And just touching on sort of the reopening of the office facilities that you do have, um, a lot has been made during the pandemic of sort of the timeliness and effectiveness of guidance from the government to operate in a COVID secure way. Um, from your point of view, do you always have you well, have you always felt that you've been well informed throughout or have you had to go out and interpret one or two things for yourselves at times? Um. No, I, I think we we felt we we were we knew what we should be doing. Um, 
I mean, I, I know there's, there's now, you know, sort of saying for next week, um, the rest, all the restrictions are being lifted, but we're still finding that people would prefer not to be too close to others in, in the office environment. Fortunately, we've got quite a big office and, and there is enough room to allow that, but um, that seems to be the, the general feeling. And then there's also the fact that, that people know that they can work from home. So why on earth should they be sitting in the car for um, three quarters of an hour to get to somewhere um, just to do the same work as they'd be doing if they were sitting at home? So um, we've, we've got a, an element of that as well, I think. Mm. Yeah, certainly we've learned a lot about work-life balance, but also time efficiency, haven't we? Do people need to be travelling to sort of work for just a couple of hours to go to meetings, for example, when you can just do that over a Teams call? So that's all a lot for business to sort of take in and consider over the year, the next uh, few months for sure. And just thinking of some of those sort of lessons from COVID, if we call it that, is there anything you'd say that maybe you've learned from this experience of sort of being thrown in at the deep end and having to adapt to all of this? Uh, well, as I say, the, the, the most important thing is having systems that um, enable us to, uh, well, for, that everybody knows how they're working, what they're working on, and mm-hmm. you know what 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 are they then expected, what's expected of them. Um, that that's taken a bit of time to adapt to. I think our, our systems were, were there, but they weren't necessarily being used in the same way as you have to when everybody's working in different places. Um, but we, we we've certainly um, you know, changed, for instance, some some of the um, uh, we, we've got sort of group email addresses that we've now set up that, that make it much easier for a group of people to all access the same email, um, which before wasn't really happening unless somebody had sent something and copied someone else. Now it all comes to a group, and it's much easier to to work on. So it it they're all little things really, mm. um, but it has worked. We've had to had to do that. Um, the other thing we we have done is we we've got um, a couple of people who uh, do attend the office um, five days a week. They have agreed to do so. They 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 jumped at the opportunity to do so. I think. Um, and and having everybody now knows there's somebody there that they can contact. Uh, whatever the problem is, as it were, um, to, to get it resolved. So. Um, that's been uh, an important point as well um, to make sure that's working. Yeah, absolutely. We've all sort of taken a few um, sort of important bits from this, haven't we? Um, And we've got to sort of show that flexibility and just work around people because I suppose like people's preferences, their sort of mental state of mind, well-being, mental health, all of those things are all sort of issues that have been amplified by the pandemic as well. So as leaders, I suppose, showing that flexibility going forward is going to be very, very vital. Uh, yeah, yes, absolutely, and and we we certainly intend to to, to carry on the, this way, um, certainly for the foreseeable future. Um, I I think there may be um, some times where we where we will invite everybody into the office at, at the same time, but it's it's not the immediate future or next week. <laughs> so, uh, and I know we can't, of course, look too far ahead, um, Elaine, but just before we do wrap up on the show today, because I'm conscious that we're starting to run short of time, 
Um, we know that the Freedom Day is coming on July the 19th. Um, we know we can't look too far beyond that because there will be another review of regulations in the September time. But in an ideal world, if we move into the post-COVID period and really embrace that, um, what is it that you're sort of expecting business-wise? And where do you see yourselves at NSO Associates by this time in 2022? Um well, as, as I said, the, the the work that we're doing, I think, will will, will carry on um, and at, at much the same level. Um, one of the things that we have been doing for clients is um, where they, where it's needed is, is submitting their furlough claims. Uh, now that's we it's scheduled to finish at the end of September, um, so we're we're also doing some work with one or two clients as to what you know what they're going to do about their staffing after the end of September. Uh, but in looking a bit longer term than that, um, we, we've got some other things happening with the accountancy world. Um, making tax digital is uh, being rolled out by HM um, Revenue and Customs. Um, although we were very apprehensive about it when it first came in for VAT, um, I think we're we, we've seen some some good things from it, and also some frustrating things from it as well. Um, but I know that that's going to be something we're going to have to address uh, very seriously um, in the next 12 to 18 months, uh, which may also have an impact on our IT systems as well. Um, but I, I actually see us being working in quite a similar way, really, going forward for, for at least 18 months, probably longer. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting time, isn't it? And there are still a great many variables in this. Um, a lot still to, be, of course, be made clear in the future. And I think, Elaine, as we start to actually understand more about what's going on, what it's going to mean for the accountancy world as well, I'd actually relish the opportunity to welcome you back onto the programme with us because I've actually quite enjoyed sort of having a little bit of a look into what's been going on in that side of things. And um, I've really enjoyed having you on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> and lastly, Elaine, just before we do, of course, uh, depart, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all that's still going on as well, because we're not quite out of the woods with this situation yet, but I think better days certainly are ahead of us. Thank you very much, then. It was a pleasure to welcome Elaine Oddy, partner at NSO Associates, onto today's podcast. Um, coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who's going to be offering his take on the events of the last 15 or 16 months during the pandemic and his hopes for the weeks ahead of us. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm -hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can 
uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. 
Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed 
without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation not incarceration it was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks. And uh, 
we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.